finished our songs for the summer, and we're going back into, I just heard Dolly say, praise the Lord, and uh, <laughs> she gets convicted by these Old Testament passages, <clears throat> Dolly does. So anyway, we are, we're finished our summer, and we're going to go full swing as we head toward the fall, and we're now in Matthew chapter 11. I don't know how many books we've covered in the past 10 years in this class, but we've covered a lot. And we've already done three of the Gospels, and now we're in this fourth Gospel of Matthew. And when you look at Matthew chapter 11, uh, I guess for those of you who uh, are new to the class, and for Mr. Smith who's here to the class, and uh, let me give you a little summary. What Matthew does is he tells the story of Jesus to an audience that did not know Jesus. He's writing this story, you know, 40 or 50 years after the events take place. And these are people who live north of uh, Palestine. They live up in Syria. So just think about that. These are people who have been reached with the gospel uh, by others. Most of those, these people will be younger. They did not know Jesus. They never saw a miracle of Jesus. Everything they're hearing is secondhand, and they're hearing it from uh, Matthew. And these people are now part of a church. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. And they're struggling for unity. It's possible that the temple in 70 AD has been destroyed. Judaism and Christianity are at odds. Uh, but in the church, Jews and Gentile believers have come together, but it's a struggle. Because imagine you're Jewish, and you've got a father who's Jewish, and a mother who's Jewish, and they're not followers of Jesus, but you are. And you're hanging around with a bunch of Gentiles who are followers of Jesus. So the Jewish people in this church are under pressure from family and friends to abandon Jesus and come back to old-fashioned Judaism. So if you can understand that, you'll understand the Gospel of Matthew much better. That's the historical context. Now, thus far, what we have is in chapters 1 through 4, Matthew has told us about the birth of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, and the temptation of Jesus. Then in chapters 5 through 7, he's given us the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are ye. And Jesus teaching about salt and light. You'll remember if you've been in our class about that. And then chapters 8 and 9, he includes all of Jesus' miracles up until that time. So chapters 8 and 9 are about the miracles. In chapter 10, Jesus chooses the 12 apostles. And he instructs them. And now we pick up in chapter 11. So are you with me? So let me give you the outline for our study today. Okay? Verse 1, you're going to see is a transition verse, and it will become very apparent to you when you read that. Okay. Verses 2 and 3, John the Baptist inquires if Jesus is the Messiah. He's in prison, and he sends word back asking, is Jesus the Messiah? And then verses 4 through 6, Jesus gives his reply. And then verses 7 through 15, Jesus affirms, John the Baptist. He speaks a good word about John the Baptist. And that's where we'll stop today. So let's look at our transition statement. Let's look at verse 1. 
Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished commanding his twelve disciples, that's what all chapter 10 was about, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. What cities? The neighboring cities in Galilee. So Jesus departs from this place and he goes to these other cities and he begins to teach and preach. We know that he's teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God. Now up until this time, Jesus' ministry has been a success. But things are about to change. Okay, He's going to face opposition. And so chapter 11, in a sense, is a pivot or a turning point in the story. Now we come to verses 2 and 3 and we have John the Baptist inquiry. Now I want you to look at verse 2. When John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and he said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now, 98% of all the commentaries say that John is now having doubts about Jesus being the Messiah. Are you the one or should we go start hunt for another Messiah? And uh, they base this on the fact on some assumptions that they make, these commentators. They say John is hunting for a Messiah that will overthrow Rome, you know, violently and set up the kingdom of God, and there'll become and the judgment will come upon the earth. And uh, Jesus uh, does not fulfill that picture, so he's having doubts. But when I read that text, if you read it, I don't see any doubts at all in that statement. In fact, read what it says. It says, when he heard in prison about the works of Christ, he said to his disciples, he said, are you the coming one or should we look for another? What motivates him to ask the question if he's the Christ? What does it say there? When he heard about the works of Christ, when he heard about his miracles, when he heard about his miracles, he said, hey, this might be the Messiah. That doesn't sound like doubt. Seems like he's sending these guys there to get an affirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. And if he's not, well, then they should look for another. Now, we know that John was put in prison from other Gospels prior to Jesus launching his public ministry. So, in other words, uh, by the time Jesus goes out on his own and starts choosing apostles, John is already in prison. John has never seen a miracle of Jesus with his own eyes. He's in prison before Jesus does those things. Notice what the text says. Do you see the text? When John heard, do you see that? When John heard in prison about the works of Christ. What is it that causes John to ask if Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ? He gets these second-hand reports. And that gets him excited. Miracles are happening. At least that's what he's hearing. So he sends his disciples to find out if these miracles indeed are happening. And if they are, then is Jesus the Christ? So it's these glowing reports that causes John to send his disciples. That makes sense, doesn't it? Now notice that Matthew uses in verse 2 the word Christ. John hears about the works of Christ, which the word simply means Messiah. John or Matthew, rather, identifies Jesus as the Messiah in this passage. There's no evidence that there's any doubt that Jesus 
is the Messiah. And Matthew's audience certainly believes that. So now, this team comes to Jesus. Now look at Jesus' response. Look at verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Go tell John the things which you hear and what? See. Okay, now watch. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are clean, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now notice what he tells John, uh, what he tells us these disciples of John. He says, go back and give John an eyewitness report. John's heard rumors that miracles are happening. Now you've seen it. Go back and give him an eyewitness report. Now, Jesus lists six things that are happening that prove that he's the Messiah, that the kingdom of God is breaking into time. Notice those six things in verse 5. Number one, the blind see. Number two, the lame walk. Lepers are clean. Four, deaf hear. Five, the dead are raised. And six, the poor have the gospel preached to them. These six things are signs that the kingdom has arrived. On what basis do we say that? Well, let me show you. These are passages that John the Baptist would recognize. Mark your place here and go back to Isaiah chapter 29. And I want you to notice, when we go there, the things that are listed that are associated with the kingdom. Isaiah chapter 29. So here, the writer Isaiah talks about the kingdom being restored to Israel when God brings the people back into the land. And when you get to Isaiah 29, look down to verse 18. 29 and verse 18. Okay, so watch. Verse 18. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the book. There's the deaf will hear. That's number one. One of the signs. Okay, verse 18. The eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. So there's a second sign. Verse 19, the humble shall also increase their joy, and the poor among them, there's the third, poor is mentioned, among them shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. So here we see three things that are going to happen when the kingdom comes. Now look over chapter 35 of Isaiah. Chapter 35. And look at verse 5. Isaiah 35 and verse 5. Notice what he, how he describes the kingdom when it arrives. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. So there you see that again. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. You see that. Now look at this. And the lame shall leap like a deer. And the tongue of the, deaf, the dumb shall sing. And the water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So there are four things right there that are going to accompany the arrival of Messiah and the kingdom. Now look over at Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 is the verse that Jesus quotes when he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. And here's what he says. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. This is what's going to it's going to be like when Messiah comes. The Spirit of, of the Lord God is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news or good tidings to, to the poor. Do you see that? 
to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives, and open the prison to those who are bound, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, these are the signs that are going to accompany the kingdom. Now, when you go back to Matthew 11, Jesus says, Go tell John what you've witnessed with your own eyes and what you've heard with your own ears. Heard what? Well, I heard dumb people speak. I've seen lame people walk. In fact, Jesus not only mentions the four in those passages, He adds two more, doesn't He? In Matthew 11. Lepers are cleansed. He added one. Not only have I done that, I've done more than that. Now lepers are people who had a death sentence. They were going to die. So guess what He does? He reverses the death sentence and He cleanses the lepers. And then He says in verse 5, the dead are raised up. Those who are dead, they are brought back to life. So he actually does more than was even anticipated. And then he adds this. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Notice the word blessed. This is a beatitude. There will be people who are offended of Jesus, at Jesus. Because he's not the kind of Messiah they are expecting. That same word offended is used in 1 Corinthians one where it says uh, that the cross is an offense to the Jewish people. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness. The Jews said a Messiah, dying Messiah is not supposed to die, he's supposed to overthrow Rome. And to the Gentiles it was absolute foolishness. A Messiah dying. <laughs> what a joke, you're going to follow some dead Messiah? <clears throat> so Jesus says blessed are people who are not offended by him. So there's a beatitude. But there's no indication that John is offended by him. Think about Matthew's audience. The ones that he's writing to up north. The Jews that are in the church. And their parents and their friends are pressuring them to abandon Christ and come back into the family fold. They said, you follow Messiah that dies? Come on! This is ridiculous. And so they feel this pressure and they start thinking, now I have to defend Jesus? I don't know if I'll do that. And they're offended by him. And they leave. But guess what? The people who don't leave are the people who are blessed there in verse 6. Now what Jesus does is he affirms John the Baptist in verse 7. Now this is very interesting. He's going to give us his opinion of John the Baptist. As they departed, he began to say, that's as John the Baptist's disciples departed, he began to say to the multitudes concerning John, well, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? When you were looking, heard that John was out in the wilderness, and you went out there a year or two ago, what did you expect to see? A reed? Shaken by the wind? And the answer is, is that what they were looking for when they went to look for John the Baptist? Were they looking for a reed that's just shaken by the wind? Is John, were you looking for a vacillator? Were you looking for a guy who formed his beliefs based on public opinion, the winds of doctrine, every wind of doctrine? Is that what you were looking for? No, that's not what they were looking for. Were they? John had backbone. He's not a vacillator. He's not one who's saying, well, is this the Christ or is it not the Christ? You know. 
John didn't take public opinion polls to determine his beliefs. John knew what he believed. No, they weren't looking for that. Okay? Then he says in verse 8, But what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses or the king's palaces. Did you go out to see a man all dressed up in nice clothes who works for the king, who's the king's advisor, who always tells the king what he wants to hear? A yes man, one who curries up to the king and as a result, Paid good because he's a yes man. Is that what you were looking for when you went out to see this guy named John the Baptist? And the answer is no. John the Baptist never told a king what he wanted to hear. He told King Herod, by the way, buddy, you divorced your wife and you married your brother's sister. That got John thrown in prison. That's why he's in prison right now. And that's what caused Johnny's head. He wasn't like evangelicals. Who always want to hobnob with the politician, get in there with them and get in on those big dinners, get the invited to the White House with another 40 or 50 or 60 people and say, I'm at the president. Well, he, did, he, you, he may have shook your hand, but he doesn't remember you, by the way. Yeah. <clears throat> but you can tell the story the rest of your life. John wasn't like that. Is that what you were hunting for? That's not what John was like. Look at verse 9. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. That's what you went out to see. You went out to see somebody who would tell you the truth, who was a spokesman for God and had no pretense whatsoever. A man who didn't wear nice soft clothes, but wore camel hair. Who didn't eat at the state dinners of the president but ate locust and honey. That's the kind you got, kind of man you went out to see, wasn't it? Man had backbone? And the answer is yes. We went out to see a prophet. And look what he says at the end of verse 9. Yes, I say to you, not only that, and more than a prophet. How can you be more than a prophet? You ever wonder that? How can you be more than a prophet and less than a messiah? John wasn't the Messiah, but he was more than a prophet. A prophet, yes, but guess what? Even more than a prophet. How can he be more than a prophet? Well, let's find out. Look what he says in verse 10. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, and he will prepare your way before you. That's a quote from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 where God says right before the kingdom comes, right before the Messiah appears, he is going to send one, a unique man, who is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He's going to be the Messiah's advanced man. And he's going to be the one that prepares the way for the Messiah's arrival and the arrival of the kingdom. He has a unique position in human history, in God's plan for the kingdom of God. A unique place. That's why in the Gospel of John, it says, there was a man sent by God whose name was John. That's how that Gospel starts right out in John 1.6. 
So he has a unique place. That means he is more than a prophet. A prophet, yes, but the unique forerunner of the kingdom of God. And then Jesus even makes a stronger statement. Look what he says in verse 11. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Now, do you see that phrase, born of a woman? That just means a human being. That's a Hebrew idiom. And all it means is a human being. There's never been a person, there's never been a human being. A human being who what? Who has risen that's greater than John the Baptist. Notice he wasn't born great. What does he do to become great? He rises the greatness. Do you see that? There's never been a human being who has risen to greatness who has risen that's greater than John the Baptist. So he says John the Baptist is the greatest human being who's ever lived. That's certainly more than a prophet, isn't it? He rose to greatness. Now comes the surprise. Now comes the surprise. Look in the middle of verse 11. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Wow. Now, this blows my mind. He who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than the greatest man who ever lived. Think of Matthew's audience living 50 years after these events take place. Matthew's writing about them and they're in the kingdom of God. What does that mean for them? That means they're greater than John the Baptist. What does it mean for you? It means you're greater than John the Baptist. In God's evaluation, He sees you greater than the greatest man who ever lived. Greater than even John the Baptist. Now, if John the Baptist was the greatest ever born, does that mean he was greater than Moses? Does that mean he was greater than Abraham? Yes. Does that mean he was greater than King David? Yes. And if you're greater than John the Baptist, does that mean you're greater than Moses? Yes. Abraham? Yes. King David? That is how God evaluates you. If you could just get that in your mind, that God thinks of you that much, you wouldn't think so little of yourself. Now your boss might not think much of you. But God highly esteems you. Your children might not think much of you. They might criticize you when, when they're with you. Say, you can't hear anymore. You're getting old. Look at that gray hair. But I want you to know, God thinks a lot of you. Your ex-spouse might not think much of you, but God thinks a lot of you. Now, how is it that those in the kingdom of God are greater than John the Baptist? Because John the Baptist was born part of the old age. Before the kingdom of God was brought in in its fullness, and before the 
Holy Spirit was given and this kingdom age began. John the Baptist was dead. You were born during this time of the Holy Spirit when the kingdom is here right now already. Not in its full extent, as it will be in the future, but it's here already. And guess what? If you're least in the kingdom, you're greater than John the Baptist. Now I've got some good news for you. You don't even have to be least in the kingdom. Who wants to be least in the kingdom? You want to be great in God's kingdom? Jesus gave the principle. What do you have to do? Just be the servant of all. Be the servant of all, and you'll be the greatest in God's kingdom. But even if you're not, and you're just the least, guess what you are? You're greater than John the Baptist. This absolutely is amazing to me. Now Jesus says this in verse 12. You still with me? So don't stumble over Jesus, you know. Realize that you're blessed. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violent take it by force. Now, everybody agrees that this is the most difficult verse in all of Matthew to interpret, figure out what it means. What does it mean? The kingdom suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Well, there are three major theories, and theory number one is that violent men are opposing the kingdom. And we know that they will oppose the kingdom of God in Jesus' message. They'll put, finally put him to the cross. So the kingdom is suffering violence. And the violent men take it by force. There are some that say, we don't believe in uh, the way Jesus is doing things. We're going to set up the kingdom of God by force. Remember the zealots? They wanted to set up the kingdom of God by just overthrowing Rome through violence and through force. Uh, Jesus said, you know, if you do that, you really won't set up anything. He that lives by the sword will what? Violence produces annihilation. Now think of this. He who lives by the sword will what? Die by the sword. Violence produces annihilation. It's not going to produce the kingdom. You can't produce the kingdom by force. Jesus understood that. He produces the kingdom by taking the violence upon himself. That Rome has to offer. Paul says, don't you know I can kill you? Get rid of this kingdom stuff that you're talking about. So he kills him. What happens? Three days later, Jesus comes out of the grave. Now who's one? Pilate and Rome or Jesus? Can Rome kill him again? No. No. So, it was nonviolence that brings about the kingdom, not violence. After Jesus is raised and people start following Jesus, there were still a lot that didn't follow Jesus. The majority didn't follow Jesus. The majority of Jews didn't follow Jesus. They said, we're going to set up the kingdom by force! And so they started a war with Rome called the Jewish War. It started in 66 AD and ended in 70 AD. You know what happened in 70 AD? Titus brought his troops right in and just wiped all of them out. 1,100,000 Jews were killed. 
in that act of violence. It was like another holocaust. The temple was destroyed, <coughs> Jerusalem was flattened, and the Jews that survived were scattered or imprisoned. Another revolt came up. Sixty years later in 135, and some of these Jews got together, so we're going to try to overthrow them again. And guess what happened that time? Same exact thing. So, I think that this is describing that violent people are trying to bring about the kingdom. They're coming against Jesus' way of bringing about the kingdom. And that simply doesn't work. The kingdom breaks in. The kingdom is very powerful. And it's God's power that brings about the kingdom. And yes, people will oppose it. Now look at verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, meaning about the kingdom until John. They all had some idea about the kingdom and how it would be set up, but they were they didn't understand all the plan. Each prophet had a little bit of the idea and some of them thought that this is how it would happen and that's how it would happen, but it's not really how it happened. But they all prophesied about a future kingdom. Now look at verse 14. And if you're willing to receive it, if you're willing to receive it, he, that's John the Baptist, is the Elijah to come. If you're willing to receive it, John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. Now this comes out of Malachi again. So I want you to go back one book to Malachi. <clears throat> so this is what the prophet Malachi was talking about. I doubt if he even knew what he was talking about. He was right writing under inspiration. He probably didn't understand it all, but he writes it down. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Verse 1 of chapter 3. You've already seen this. Jesus quoted this verse a little earlier. Look what God says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. God says he will prepare the way. Now, that messenger, we know, is John the Baptist. That's who Jesus said he was in that previous verse. Okay. So John the Baptist is the forerunner of the Messiah in the kingdom of God. That's what makes him unique. Now look at chapter 4 and verse 5. Malachi 4 and 5. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet. You see that? Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Elijah, this Elijah who's coming, will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their father, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So here we see in Malachi that God's going to send the messenger who he identifies as Elijah who is turning people back to God. Okay? So now what Jesus says in verse 14 of Matthew 11 is this. If you're willing to receive it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Now what does this say? Is he the Elijah to come or is he not the Elijah to come? What does it say? If you're willing to receive it. <laughs> if you're willing to receive it and realize this, guess what? 
and realize that he's the forerunner of the kingdom, then you will heed his message. Which is what? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And you'll be a member of the kingdom of God. You'll heed his message. And if you heed his message, you'll believe that Jesus is the Messiah. If you don't heed it, if you don't believe he's the Elijah to come, then guess what? Then you won't believe his message, and obviously you wouldn't follow Jesus, would you? So your opinion of John the Baptist will determine your opinion of Jesus. Is John the Baptist the Elijah to come? And is Jesus the Messiah? The answer is yes, but here's the question. Are you willing to receive it? Are you willing to receive it? So, then he says this in verse 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him take what I've just said, internalize it, believe it, and put it into practice. So, what has Jesus said? Number one, what we see in this passage is that John gets a second-hand report of miracles, and it sort of pricks his interest. It gets him excited. He sends disciples to find out if these things are really happening, and Jesus is the Messiah. They return with an eyewitness report. Yeah, they really are happening. It's probably the Messiah. And then Jesus affirms John's unique place, and God's plan of salvation and the kingdom of God. He's the messenger who's to come, prepares the way for the kingdom. He's the Elijah who's turning people's hearts back to God. And he's the greatest man who's ever lived. But the amazing thing is that you're greater than John in God's eyes. Even if you're least in the kingdom. But you don't have to be least. You want to be great in God's kingdom? Then be the servant of all. This is God's estimation of you. This is God's estimation of Jesus. And this is God's estimation of John the Baptist. Next week we'll pick up at verse 16. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you esteem us as valuable. You love us. Help us not to be offended by you. Help us not to be ashamed of standing up for Jesus Christ in the workplace, in the neighborhood, with our friends, with our family. Help us not to shriek back. Help us to have as high opinion of you as you do of us. Help us to be bold. Thank you, Lord, for this passage that's opened our eyes to some of these truths. May those of us who have ears hear what the Spirit of God has spoken this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.